Discover the inherent power of God in you. Whether there are challenges or not, we are still the same. We are constant. God is constant. God does not change. And that is the life that we have received. He says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is the same life we have also received. We are also the same yesterday, today, and forever. What kind of life? We, we, we are the same because we have the same life with Christ. So when you think about God, think about you. Because everything He is, that is why He told Abraham, He said, I am your, your exceeding great reward. God gave Himself as a reward to Abraham. And we are the seed of Abraham. Therefore, we have inherited God Himself. Listen to Pastor Oti Boatim as Christ is magnified in you. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that a man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Let's read verse 16 again, back to 16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm speaking on the word of God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So tonight, what we are doing is this verse. It's 16 and 17. Hallelujah. The verse has blessed you already. <laughs> All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. First of all, I want to talk about inspiration. Inspiration. I want you to understand about the Bible. The Bible. The fact that the Bible is inspired. The Bible is inspiration. And you have to understand it. I know you know about the Bible, but you need to be able to put forth a defense. You need a stronger conviction about the Bible. So you can be ready at any time to give an answer for anyone who asks you a reason Concerning the Bible. Inspiration. Now, Jesus is the word of God and we know that. Is that not so? Because John 1 said, In the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's Jesus. And Revelation 19 verse 13 says, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So Jesus' name is the word of God. He is the word of God. So the word of God actually is a person. Now, if the word of God is a person, then why do we have the Bible. Why do we have the Bible? Why is it written? Why should it be written down? Is it not enough for Jesus to be the word of God and to reveal himself to us that is the word of God? As if it's not enough, but God has gone further to give us a written word. And the written word is all about the living word, that is Jesus Christ. The Bible is the documentation of a person, that is Jesus. We know that in John 5.39, is Jesus. The Bible is Jesus. 
Why the documentation at all? Why does it have to be written? Why should God permit this thing to be written? Why? Very important. Now, there's this story in U.S. This PhD student who was doing his dissertation and before his professors, he was given his speech and putting forth his defense. And all along, while he was speaking, putting forth his defense on his dissertation, he was just quoting from people. He, he would say, and I met this person at this hotel, and this is what the person said, and he would quote from the person. And I met this person at this restaurant, and he would quote from the person. So he was just quoting from people he had met. Then the professor stopped him and said, that's not, that's not right. You can't just be quoting. You should write it down. It should be documented. You can't just be saying, I met this person, this is what the person said. It must be documented. Then the guy just paused and asked the professor, why? Why should he document it? What, what is the use of documentation? The professor didn't mind him. He said, okay, I get you. Please continue. <laughs> so he continued, <laughs> finished it. After some months, he went back to the school and uh, the professor met him and said, young man, your PhD is ready. You have qualified. You did very well. But for your information, we are not going to give you the PhD in a written form. We are giving it to you orally. <laughs> so you see how absurd for it not to be written. So though Jesus is the word of God, God permitted Jesus and all about him to be documented in the Bible as a validation, a verification, authentic, authentication of actual who he is. So the Bible, the written word is so important. And I want us to start. All scripture is given by the inspiration. Start with the word inspiration. You have to understand the inspiration of God's word. Other than that, for instance, Billy Graham, one of the powerful preachers of all time, once upon a time in his life, the devil began to attack his mind that the Bible is not the word of God. In the Billy Graham, in his ministry, in human terms, he has won more souls than any other person. And he began to fight with himself. The devil began to confuse his mind. Then he began to doubt the Bible. Can you imagine? The preacher is not doubting the Bible, that the Bible shall it, it may not be from God. So he had to abandon himself to some place for days and weeks. He was fighting and wrestling. Is the Bible from God? It was from the devil, actually. The devil just came to confuse him because... The devil, of course, knew the tremendous impact he was making in the body. How can someone like Billy Graham get confused? As when pastor comes and says that, hmm, brethren, this Bible we've been reading for many years, but I'm, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> hey, if pastor is confused, then what should we do? And we are for the devil. We are not ignorant of his devices. Because I've seen scholars falling victim of this. 
people who are, who are greatly learned, still, there comes a time they start questioning the Bible. So, you need to understand the word inspiration is given by the inspiration of God. So, the question is that how do you know the Bible is from God? How do you know the Bible is the, the breathing of God? How do you know God authored the Bible? How do you know? What is the proof? What is the proof that the Bible is the word of God? What is the proof? I know we all know it, but the problem with Christians is that, for instance, we can know Jesus is God in our hearts, but we may be confused. If someone meets us on the way and questions us, and we did, we are just there, don't even know what to say. Yet, regarding our hearts, we have the full conviction. But as to when we are faced with that question, we are helpless. And we believe that, oh, this is the word of God. But how do you defend it? Oh, no, I know it's the word of God. How, you know it, but... <laughs> the knowing is good for you. But you must be able to also help another. Ah, that's it. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, because once I've seen people saying, oh, the Bible cry. I'm not dealing with the canonization, but even with the canonization, people are asking so many questions and so many doubts, and if you don't take time, your heart to be driven from it. The devil has a lot of schemes. I'm not dealing with canonization. I'm dealing with inspiration. So how do we know the Bible is inspired? How do we know it's from, the, it's from God? Number one, because it is unique in continuity. That's the first point. Because of its uniqueness in continuity, I can put it this way, because it is wonderful in unity. Because we know the Bible is from God. We know the Bible is inspired because it is wonderful in unity. It is wonderful in unity. Oh, it is, yeah. Unique in continuity or wonderful in unity. This is one of the proofs that the Bible is the word of God. Now, what does it mean? The word unity and continuity. Now, if we take the Quran, the Quran is from one person. Everything came from one person and it was compiled. When you take the book of Buddha, for instance, it is written by one person. But when you take the Bible, the Bible is written. Is composed of 66 books written by 40 authors within the period of 1,600 years. You see, 1,600, this Bible you are holding, 1,600 years, 40 people wrote the Bible, 66 books. Okay. And it's amazing that for 1,600 years, we've had 40 authors, 40 people have written the Bible. Yet, when you take the Bible, there's a common thread that is woven through the Bible. There's a single thread. There is unity. There is harmony in all of the books that have been written. And that's a mystery of it. Let me give an example. Take any subject in this world. Take any topic in this world. Take any controversial subject. And take ten books written about that subject. Don't even go far. Take 10 books written in this generation and make sure the books are written from one country, let's say U.S. Make sure the authors are from, let's say, U.S. And they all belong to one generation. And they are all addressing one controversial subject. Just take 10 of them and go through each of them. 
they will never agree. You'll see differences. But how much more the Bible? Written by 40 people in 1,600 years. And these people, each of them belong to a different cultural situation, a different socioeconomic background, three continents are involved, different languages, different situations, different circumstances, different moods. Some never even saw what others have written. Some never even read the books others have written, and they never knew it was even written. People from different backgrounds, for instance, Moses was a well-educated politician, but Peter was a fisherman who never went to school. David was a king. Matthew worked with IRS, or in Ghana we call it GRA. <laughs> That was his work, Matthew. <laughs> Esther was a queen. Ruth was a peasant. People of different class, people of different social status, people of different race, different languages, different backgrounds, different situations, different era, different far removed. Yet they all write different books in different times and you put them together and there is harmony and unity. It's not possible. It must be from God. It must be from heaven. And you look at it and you realize that all the truth from all the books are parallel. All the truth harmonize. There's one thread within them, woven the, 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 the concept of sin, the concept of man, the concept of God, the salvation, prophecies, everything agrees. Isaiah will say something. But before he said it, 300 years before he said it, someone had already, already spoken about it. And some of another place, it's so unique. When the New Testament was written, no, they, they didn't have the New Testament. The New Testament was put together. You know when it was put together? 397 AD, almost 400, 400 years after Christ left. So they, they didn't have it together. It's amazing. Yet you see the unity and the uniqueness and the wonders. Hallelujah. So the Bible is inspired because it is wonderful in unity. See the unity. No, there's no single book in the world like that. 1,600 years. Number two. Because it is unique in survival. In survival. <laughs> Uniqueness in survival. Brethren, the Bible has survived the ravages of time. The Bible has survived persecutions, afflictions. <laughs> the Bible has survived criticisms, criticisms over many years. If the Bible was any book, that book would have been totally extinct by now. Let me show you what the Bible has survived. In 167 BC, a man arose by name Antiochus Epiphany. <laughs> that, that means that 167 years before Christ was born, a man was raised by name Antiochus Epiphany. Actually, Daniel the prophet prophesied about him. He came to do what the Antichrist would come and do. And um, Antiochus Epiphany, when he rose up as a king of Greece, the, Greece was the empire of the world then, so he conquered the world. 
Then he entered Jerusalem and built his own image in the holies of holies and commanded the Israelites to serve, to worship him. And offered pig as a sacrifice. You know, pig is an abomination. And did abominable things. And uh, this is what he did. And he commanded all Israel to worship him. And those who refused were, mass- were just slain. Now, when he arose, he got that, he took all the Hebrew Bibles together. Every Bible was brought. They scavenged and they searched every Bible in Israel and they brought it together and they bent everything. Every Bible was bent. So they believed that there was no Bible again. Yet that day, the Bible survived. How it survived is a mystery. But beyond that time was the, time, the papal persecution. Papal, when I say papal, I'm talking about the Pope. If you read about the Dark Ages, what the popes did against the Bible was too dangerous. There was a council called the Council of Valencia. Now, in those days, there were church councils. And at the Council of Valencia, the priest passed a law that no layman has a right to hold the Bible. At that time, the church was divided into two, clergy and laity. So, it was a problem to the church. For instance, if you, you, you have a case and uh, you want to go to the court of law, you need a lawyer who is a specialist. Is that not so? If you are sick in your body, you have to go to a doctor who is a specialist. So in the same way they said, if you have a spiritual problem, you need to go to a specialist. Not everyone has a key. So they, they marketed the lady from the clergy. And even the clergy, even among the clergy, not everyone has access to the Bible. No. Martin Luther was a priest for many years and he had not seen the Bible, not even once. He had never seen the Bible before. Until one day he saw an old Bible in, in an old library and read it and saw the just shall live by faith. That was his, how he turned the church around. That's how come he protested against the practices and through his protest came the protestant. So, it was believed that the Pope said that he only had the key decode the mysteries of, the, of God's word. And the word of the Pope was equivalent to scripture. Yeah. So, they realized that the ordinary people had access to the Bible and it was a threat to them. So they passed the law. I'm telling you. And they were, now, if they come to your house and they find a Bible in your house, you know what happens to you? Now, they kill you instantly and they burn the house down. They don't just kill you, but the house is also bent down. And it was now 2011. I just thought about the instruments they used to kill the, the believers in those days. It was, you know what? And most of the times they will leave you half dead. They had instruments they, they, for the women, they would, they would just bring you, they would just cut your two breasts away, or sometimes your two hands, and leave you like that. Sometimes they just take your eyes, they just take your testicles, something. <laughs> Power of vision, power of reproduction. <laughs> Deprive you of your enjoyment in life. <laughs> and some of them were drowned in water until they died. Why? Just for having a Bible. Just for having a Bible. There's a popular story. That was what we call the Inquisition. The Inquisition. It means inquiry into the inquire 
They search your items. They come to your room, get to your bedroom, get. They will search everywhere to say whether there is a Bible in your house, whether you have a copy. One woman was baking bread, and he saw them coming. She saw them coming quickly. She took the Bible and dropped it in the flour and pushed everything to the oven. <laughs> They searched the house, they couldn't see anything. Can you imagine that? After they went, she brought the oven, opened the oven, and nothing had happened to the Bible. It was intact. One man was mixing altar, cement. Saw them come and took his Bible and just put it in it. In you know? <laughs> and used the blocks to just uh, cemented everything. After many years, it was broken and the Bible was intact. Nothing had, ha- had happened to the Bible. So some of these things were happening. God raised one man by name John Wycliffe. And it was massive. They persecuted him. Sometimes, I remember there was a time about 400 women, 150 pregnant women, because they had access to the Bible, they burnt all of them alive. They just burnt them for having a Bible. Countless cause. It was really a massacre. Were killed. Just for the Bible. William Tyndale is the one who translated the Bible into the New Testament into English. He translated the New Testament into English, William Tyndale. And they bent him at stake for doing that. For translating the Bible into English so many could have access. Just bent him at stake. John Haas was bent at stake. John Calvin was bent at stake. All Regis Wingley was bent. Many have been bent so that Bible could reach us. <laughs> Hallelujah. No, the Bible. The devil did everything to extinguish, to just wipe the Bible away. It didn't, it didn't prevail. It didn't prevail. Men will be in caves and they will rise. You know, they didn't have the pens we have. So it took a long time to produce one copy. They will write. In the days of John, John Wycliffe, you, you meet a 10-year-old child. And that 10-year-old child can quote the entire Gospels to you. No, because there's only one Bible. And you better keep it other than that. Now, the devil had another scheme. After the Dark Ages, he raised up critics to criticize the Bible. People like Voltaire, the French philosopher. In the days of Voltaire, you know, he made two profound statements. First, he said, first he said that in 20 years, Christianity shall be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice which took 12 apostles to raise. That's how a man boasted. My single hand. Then he said, in a hundred years, the Bible will be no more. The Bible will be totally forgotten and wiped from the memory of men. In hundred years. That's what he, he prophesied in hundred years. When he died, he died and a French Bible society took over his house, house and they used his house for printing Bibles. <laughs> That's what God can do. And hundred years after his death, you could hardly find the writings of Bote. They were almost extinct. But exactly after 100 years, the Bible was almost in every house. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> Tom Paine. 
one of the guys who strong when it comes to atheism, one of the strongest names was Tom Paine, Thomas Paine. And he wrote a powerful book, The Age of Reason, that affected many people in Europe and took their minds from God and the Bible. Age of Reason. So many began to doubt the Bible because of Age of Reason. Age of Reason. When Tom Paine was on his deathbed, you know what he said? He said, Oh, 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 if I had walls, I would have given them up so that the age of reason might not have been written. Oh, if they ever have been an agent of the devil, I have been the one. Oh, so he was regretting on his deathbed. Hallelujah. He wished he could exchange Walt for that book not to have been written. Tom Payne. Beloved, the Bible is still alive. Life. for China, after China, hundred pastors used to use one Bible written on papers. So when I meet him, you get Second Corinthians three. I take Colossians five, Colossians two. We just exchange wherever we meet. You only read it in the washroom. It has survived. Had it been any other book, it would have been totally been extinct. This is a proof that, that the Bible is from God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Number three, we know the Bible is inspired because it is unique in its fulfillment. Unique in its fulfillment. Prophecy. Because of prophecy. The things the Bible predicted came to pass exactly with exactitude, with perfection. Unique in its fulfillment. Whatever it has said, thousand years before Christ died, David spoke of the cross. David spoke of the cross thousand years before Christ died. And he spoke of the Roman cross. At that time, nobody had died like, like that on the Roman cross. The first person who died on the Roman cross died 497 B.C. Yeah, David spoke of it ahead of time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isaiah mentioned the name Cyrus, who was a Persian king. And he prophesied that that king was going to be born and his name would be Cyrus. And Cyrus was a hidden king, was a Gentile. And exactly, he prophesied 150 years before the man was born and his name was called Cyrus. And he, did, he had no idea about anything called the Bible. He didn't know the Jewish God, yet his name had been mentioned. Josiah's name was mentioned 320 years before he was born. <laughs> Hallelujah. Unique in its fulfillment. Look at Daniel the prophet. Historians are shocked when they read Daniel because they have wondered why prophecies could just be fulfilled in such exactitude. Daniel prophesied 500 years before some things will happen and they happen exactly as it is. Now, he prophesied about the coming of the, the, the succession of the Persian kings and how they, they were going to rule it came to pass. He prophesied about the, about the kingdoms that will come. During the days of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was a king 
It was the Babylonian Empire. Then he prophesied the coming of the Medo Persian Empire and prophesied the coming of the Greco the Grecian Empire or the Greco Macedonian Empire. Prophesied the coming of the Roman Empire. Prophesied and prophesied and prophesied. And I'm telling you, everything began to unfold as he said. And every king in, in succession, that's how they were unfolded. 300 years after his prophecy, he prophesied that a leader will come out of Greece. And that leader was Alexander the Great. And all the prophecy he gave Alexander was in imperfection. So much that when Alexander was conquering the world, he entered into the land of Israel. He was about to conquer Israel. And the high priest met him and said, General, all that you are doing is written by my God in our Bible. And what you will even do. So he requested to see the Bible. Alexander the Great saw it and was shocked. And he spared Israel. I continued. <laughs> he didn't prophesy who would take over from him. Normally, when a general is dying, he hands over to his son. But Daniel prophesied that when Alexander the Great is handing over, he will hand over to four generals. His kingdom would be divided into four. It is prophesied in Daniel. His kingdom was going to be divided into four. And when Alexander was dying on his deathbed, they asked him, Alexander, to whom would the kingdom go to? to your, is it to your son? He said, no, not to my son, but give it to the strong. Then his kingdom was divided to, to his four generals. Lassimachus, Silicus, Antiochus, Ptolemy. Now these guys, his kingdom was into four. And then I prophesied that out of four kingdoms will come two, two kingdoms. And actually the four kingdoms actually became two. And then I prophesied that from the two it will become one. And it became one. And from the one, the Roman Empire will take over. And the Roman Empire took over. Then I prophesied the exact date Christ will go on the cross. He prophesied about the 70 weeks. The exact year Christ will go on the cross. That is when Christ went to the cross. He prophesied that Christ would die before the destruction of Jerusalem. And Christ died. And after his death, exactly 40 years, Jerusalem, the, the, temple, of, the temple was destroyed in such exactity. That's how everything has been. Oh, Barabbas. When read Daniel 11, even how the kings gave their wives to make peace is written in Daniel 11. And that's how everything came to pass. In it. And these people never knew that it, had, it was written concerning them. To make in it fulfillment. Jesus himself prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem. And how he prophesied that the armies will invade Jerusalem and they will besiege the city gate. Jesus said it. That's how it was. That's how it was. And Jesus said, the disciple came to him and he said, they pointed a temple to him. Jesus said, not one stone will be laid on top of another. Yet, when General Titus was going to invade Jerusalem, his father, who was the emperor of Rome, gave him the command, if you go, don't touch the temple. So the son of the emperor said, don't touch the temple. But the son of God said, not one stone will be laid on top of another. So whose word carries the power? So he said, don't touch the temple. And he went and destroyed Jerusalem. And his generals were trying to... The temple was overlaid with gold. So they were trying to melt the gold. So they, they don't touch the temple. And in trying to melt the gold from the stone, the whole thing came down. 
It was so destroyed that not one stone actually laid on top of another. Everything. Ezekiel prophesied about the dispersion of Israel and it came to pass. So many prophecies. The Bible is unique in its fulfillment. Hallelujah. There are approximately 54 messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, which is in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And there are, there are 300 references to the Messiah which Jesus fulfilled. Now, of the 54 messianic prophecies, eight of them is confirmed by secular history. Secular history has already confirmed eight of these prophecies that they actually took place in history. And there are historical books that confirm that these things took place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That such things took place and all of those things took place. Exactly. Where Christ was to be born was already prophesied. The family he was born from had been prophesied. All of these are in secular history. Many, many other things are in secular history to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is valid. Now, let me ask you a question. Look at all the prophecies that is written about Jesus. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then how did he arrange to be born in a specific family? Because the family he was born to was prophesied 700 years before he was born. How did he arrange to be born into that specific family? Number two, if he is not who he says he is, how did he arrange to be born in a town which his parents did not even live there? And that had been prophesied by Micah 700 years before he was born. How did he arrange that? Number three, how did he arrange for his betrayal? <laughs> he was going to be betrayed by a bait. How did he arrange to be betrayed? Because his betrayal was spoken thousand years in Psalms before it happened. How did he arrange that? How did he arrange to die on the cross between two thieves? Because that had been prophesied, that had been prophesied about 1,700 years by Isaiah before it happens. How did he arrange to be killed between two thieves? The next, how did he arrange his leg not to be broken? Because they broke the, the legs of the two thieves, but when it came to him, they left his leg. How did he arrange that? Because that had been prophesied in type by Moses 1,500 years before it happened. Not one of his bones would be broken. How did he arrange that? How did he arrange for his vesture, his garment, to be torn so that they would cast lots who should take what? How did he arrange for his vesture? For the soldiers to play with, it, with his vesture? Because, because that had been prophesied a thousand years before it happened. How did he arrange to be on the cross at 9 a.m.? The same time the Passover lamb was put on a wooden pole. How did he arrange to die at 3 o'clock? Because that was when the Passover lamb was killed. It was killed at 3 o'clock. How did he arrange to die at the same time? <laughs> then how did, he, 
how did he arrange to rise from the dead? Because there were 500 witnesses that saw his resurrected body. How did he? And the Bible says he gave us many infallible proofs of his resurrection. How did he arrange to rise from the dead? I have only one, sir. The reason why he could arrange all these things is because he is God. And he determined all things, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. The things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall do all my pleasure. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He did what things. And you see, these eight prophecies, which is confirmed by secular history. There's an American professor by name, Professor Stoner. And he gave us the mathematical art. The probability he said the probability for one person to fulfill all these eight prophecies is actually one, two. <laughs> Ten to the seventeenth power. No, 10 to the 17 power, 10 and 17 zeros. It's one out of that. That's a probability for someone to be able to fulfill all these eight prophecies. And Professor Stoner, he did his mathematical calculation and he submitted it to American Scientific Affiliation as a valid proof. And for us to understand what he was trying to tell us, he illustrated it with a city, with, a, with, with, with um, this, this place, the city of uh, Texas. Now, Texas is a very big, big state. And he used Texas. And he told us that when you take Texas from the map, Texas is so huge that if you cut it from the map and you fold it towards the east, it will enter into the Atlantic Ocean. If you fold it towards the west, it will enter into the Pacific Ocean. If you fold it towards the north, it will enter into Canada. And it fold it towards the south, it will go beyond Mexico and enter into the Pacific Ocean. That's how big Texas is. And he said, now, he was talking about a 10 to the 17 power. He was just explaining that one out of 10 to the 17 power. And he said, he used the size of Texas, and he said, to get that approximation, we will need to have silver coins, dollar silver coins, and put it together to fill the whole state of Texas. And for it to reach 10 to the 17 power, it has to be two feet high, two feet high covering the entire state of Texas. That's 10 to the 17 power. And you take one coin out of it and make a mark on it and hide it somewhere. And call someone and blindfold a person and tell the person to make a choice. <laughs> that is the probability of one fulfilling all the eight prophecies. It is humanly improbable, humanly impossible for one to fulfill all of these things. It can never be. And that proves that Jesus is God. And that proves the validity of the word of God. Hallelujah. It's powerful. It's powerful. Now the next point, the Bible is inspired because it is unique in its transmission. It is unique in its transmission. Many people like to say that the Bible has a lot of errors. Muslims use that. 
critics of the Bible use that. The Bible has a lot of errors. The Bible is unique in its transmission. The truth is this. There is no problem, there is no error with the inspiration of the Bible. The seemingly errors we think the Bible has, has to do with copying. Has to do with things like words that have been omitted, exclamation signs, full stops, commas. The reason is because you know, manuscript is something that is handwritten. Manuscript is handwritten. Understand that in ancient times, they don't even use our pen and they had to write, copy everything for us. And it was human beings who were copying it for us. There was nothing wrong with the inspiration. Some of the little, little errors people saw was not because of the inspiration, it was because of the copying. Are you following me? Because of the copying. For instance, five manuscripts were taken and with the word, Jesus is, is the savior of the world. Manuscript in ancient times. Someone had written, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world and there was no D. So it is W-O-R-L. <laughs> the next person had written, Jesus Christ is the T-H, but E didn't come. So it's like, Jesus Christ is, is savior of the world. The third, the third person got it right. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. <laughs> the next person too. Jesus Christ. It's like that. Different events. But when you put all together, you could still get, find the right thing. Because if you put together all the ancient writings, none of them is without a copying error. For instance, if you take the, the writings of Plato, Plato had only seven manuscripts written about him in his, his books. Seven. Aristotle had 49. But the New Testament alone has more than 24,000 manuscripts. So, when we put all those manuscripts together, that's why we have different versions. When you put them together, you can find the right text. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, people would like to capitalize. Now, understand that the Bible was how it was written, somewhere under duress, somewhere under stress, and they just write them. The content is, perfect, is perfection. No problem with the inspiration. But some of the, sometimes, comma, they, they may put comma in, in the wrong place. The English, but you can find the right thing in the Greek. And people have just taken some of these things to capitalize on it. Now, there's this professor in, a, in Princeton Theological Seminar. Professor Bruce. Metico. Yeah, that's his name. Metico, Professor Bruce. He is a scholar in textual criticism. He's a scholar. He's a, a professor in textual criticism. <laughs> Can you imagine? And he took time after they had gone through the New Testament. You know his, what he said. He said, after going through the 20,000 sentences, after going through the 20,000 sentences of the New Testament, it is safe for every scholar to say that the Bible has at least 99.6% accuracy. 
from the original Greek text. <laughs> and when it comes to the Old Testament, in 1948, if you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the Dead Sea Scrolls was, was found in Israel in a certain cave. And that is the ancient Bible that they saw. So they took the Dead Sea Scroll and compared with our present New Old Testament. And they realized that our present Old Testament is 99% accurate. That 1% may be comma or full stop. Some point that is misplaced. But the content, nothing wrong with doctrine, 99% accurate. Hallelujah. <laughs> so people like to capitalize on these things, but above all of these things, I know the Bible is true because I know its author. I know the author of the best-selling book of all times. <laughs> I know him personally. I know, I know him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's go back to our text. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Now the word inspiration is the Greek word theonistos. Theonistos. T-H-E-O T-H-E-O T-N-E-U S-T-O-S Theonistos. Theonistos. The word is Theonistos. The word Theonistos is composite of two words. Theos and Newman. Theos is a word for God. Theos is God. T-H-E-O-S. Then Numa. P-N-E P-N-E-U-M-A. Numa is a word for breath or God. Sorry, breath or spirit. Breath or spirit. So let's go a little deeper and let me show you what it actually means. So it's Theonistos, we have Theos, we have yes, thank you. Now, the word Nistos, we spoke of Numa, is from the word new, N-E-P-N-E-U. Now, it is from the word new, P-N-E-U, P-N-E-U, new. I don't know how you mention it, but it starts with P, but it's still new. P-N-E-U, new. Now, this word actually means to blow air into a musical instrument so as to produce a distinct sound. You get it? Nistos is from the word new. Blowing air into a musical instrument to produce a distinct sound. That's the word new. Like a trumpet. Flutes. You just blow air to produce a sound. That's the first meaning of the word inspiration, where you get the word new. It also means to emit a fragrance. Emit a fragrance. Then the third definition means to project emotion, to project emotions, to project feelings, or to project emotions. All right. Why all of these things? Why am I doing all of these things? So, Theonistos speaks of God. Blow into an instrument for the instrument to produce a distinct sound. It means by so doing to emit a certain kind of fragrance. Now, this is how the Bible was written. Written. God Himself 
breathed himself. He breathed out his essence. He breathed out his life. He breathed out his substance. Into the 40 authors of the Bible, of, of the books of the Bible, he breathed himself into them. And when God breathed into them, I said to breathe, to blow air into an instrument to produce a distinct sound. Or, or to emit a kind of fragrance. So God, God, his breath, when he, 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 he hallelujah. hallelujah. When God breathed himself into them, they became like the musical instrument. They just, as a result of the breathing of God, they just received the inspiration. And they just began to emit divine fragrances through the breath of God. They just began to produce a distinct sound. They just began to, to, to receive God's emotions and God's feelings and God's heart and God's mind and God's inclinations. It's just by the inspiration of God. They just began to write, just inspiration of God. They just began to write. Kobasha. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in all time by the will of man, but holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us how the Bible was written. Knowing this first, he says that for you to understand inspiration, there's something you must know first. Knowing this first, Second Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, knowing this first, there's something you must know first concerning writing the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. That no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Those who wrote the Bible, as they were write, writing the Bible, they didn't write by their private interpretation. They didn't write the Bible by their own exposition. They didn't write the Bible by their own understanding. They didn't write the, the Bible by, by their own explanation or by their own idea. What they were writing was not private to them. It wasn't their own interpretation. It wasn't their own mind. It wasn't their own understanding. It wasn't their own explanation or exposition. They just received something divine from God and they just uttered it out. Verse 21. For prophecy came not in all time by the will of man. You see, it wasn't the man's will in interpretation, but holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word moved in the Greek actually means to carry along. Literally, it's, they, were, they spoke as they were carried along. The word in Greek actually deals with the currents of the wind that moves a ship forward. You know, the ships are propelled by the great wind. The wind moves them. And this word, move, is actually the movement of the ship by a great wind or a torrent. He's saying that these guys, the wind of the Holy Ghost propelled them. They were moved. They were inspired by the Holy Ghost to write. It wasn't from man. Hallelujah. So the Bible is pure. So pure. It's so pure. Let me give this illustration. If you take a deflated balloon and you blow air into it, what does it become? You give it a form. Previously, there was no form, but now you give it a form. Now, you've blown air into it. If the molecules in a balloon was to be carefully examined, you find out that a part of you is locked up in the balloon. A part of you is there. The same air that gave the balloon its form is the same air that sustains the balloon. The same air that gave the form is the same air 
that keeps the form. The same air that brought produce the form is held up within a balloon to sustain it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When God breathed, the scriptures materialized. And I'm telling you, the same breath of God that caused the scriptures to come into being, that same breath is held within the scriptures. That same, the same breath that produced the scriptures is the same breath that is held within the scriptures. Anytime you read the Bible, you are not reading black and white letters. Anytime you read the Bible, the breath of God is held in the scriptures. The life of God is held in the scriptures. The essence of God is held in the scriptures. The nature of God is held in the scriptures. The power of God is held in the scriptures. The ability of God is held in the scriptures. God himself, who he is, is in the scriptures. His breath is his life. The spirit is held in the scriptures. So as you are reading, you are not reading black and white letters. You are breathing in and you are inhaling divine nature. You are becoming a partaker of the divine nature. You are inhaling all of God. You are inhaling divine substance. You are inhaling divine nature. You are inhaling divine power. You are inhaling ability to overcome. You are inhaling ability to endure. You are inhaling the power to endure. The power of God and the nature of God and the life of God is held up in the scriptures. What you are holding is God's breath. It's God's breath. Hibala Shata. You are inhaling his breath. His breath just comes into you. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you, you take newspaper and read. You realize that the more you read, the more you are confused. The more you read, the more your life. Anxiety, trepidation, agitations, your mind is unsettled. The more you read, the more you become natural. The more you read, the more you read. But there is a book I, commend, I recommend to you. That book will make you a spiritual squad missile. You get into the Bible and the supernatural becomes your natural estate. Because you are literally carrying the breath of God. You literally emit divine fragrance. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, you have something in your hands. It is so powerful. It's the breath of God. The very breath of God. This breath is what made the stars. But by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. All the stars and the constellations and the galaxies, they came to being. When you read the word, you are inhaling God's creative ability. You are inhaling God's wisdom. All scripture is given by the Theonistos of God. The, the outbreathing of God. The Bible is the breath of God. Ah. And it's profitable for doctrine. Now it's profitable for five, for, for well, number one doctrine, number two for reproof, number three for correction, and number four for instruction in righteousness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Number one, for, say for doctrine. doctrine. Now doctrines are things we believe and affirm as true. That's doctrine. The things we believe and affirm as true. 
the things we believe and affirm as true. Doctrines are the foundations of what we believe. Doctrines are the foundations of what we believe. It impacts what we think. Doctrines impact what we think. Doctrines affect our worldview. It affects our worldview. Doctrines determine what we believe as right and wrong. Doctrines determine what we believe as right and wrong. In short, we are, you are the product of your doctrine. You are the product of your doctrine. It guides us in life. Determines our convictions and our standards. It guides us in life. Determines our convictions and our standards. Now, there is a difference between dogma and doctrine. Normally, we, we take doctrine to be something negative. Dogma is what a church or a denomination produces. Denominations have their own dogma, their set standard of living, something they approve, something the denomination has come to accept as tradition. That is dogma. And a lot are, are questionable. But doctrines are perfect. Because you are the product of your doctrine, actually. You are the product of what you have believed. So the doctrines you receive actually determines the quality of your life. And the breath of God gives us this. The second one is reproof. Reproof. The word is elegmos. Actually, the word reproof, the real translation in the Greek is the word conviction. Conviction. It's the same word that is used for now, faith is a substance of things useful. The evidence. The word reproof is actually evidence. Evidence. So, the word of God gives you, it reproves you and gives you the proper conviction and, and the evidence. Yeah. Sometimes you look at your life and you go like, oh, uh, uh, look at my family tree. I'm organically designed to, to failure. <laughs> <laughs> Designed to fail. Yeah, yeah. But as you read the word, the word gives you conviction and no. It reproves you of that idea and gives the proper conviction that gives you the evidence. But bring it into the fifth realm that Charlie, it is done. God has done it. You can make it in life. You can make it in life. Maybe you see yourself as a failure. Oh, after me. I'll never come out. As you read the word, the word just reproves you. Reproves you, then convict you of the right. Convict you, convict you, and gives you the evidence. Is is a realm of faith? You know, you you, you have not seen it, but you see yourself there already. <laughs> it's, it it makes you a success. Not seen a success, but it shapes it shapes your mind and sets you on high above the pedestal. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. You read away, you know you can make it. You know what you are going through right now is just a, just a passing through. You, you know you are going through the waters and you are going through the fires, but God is bringing you to a worthy place. He, 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 you know that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but it gives you the kind of conviction of the goodness of God. It gives you the evidence of the love of God. The word correction actually means to stand on your feet in the Greek. Literally, it's a word for restoration. To stand on your feet is a word for restoration. And the word of God will give you feet to stand on. 
Some of you are so discouraged in life that it's like you are lame. That which is lame be turned out of the way. Your hands are feeble. But the word of God causes you to stand upright on your feet. It gives you full restitution and full restoration. The word in the Greek has a sense of restoring things. It restores things for you. I'm telling you what you've lost, the God of God is going to restore for you. Yes. It's restoration in the word. The years the locust has eaten the cankerworm, the palmerworm, it can restore. Sometimes even in ministry, there are people we've blessed 60% for the people God wanted us to bless. Some of those people are doing very well in ministry. Some of them are doing well, but they've only done 50%. And they've also missed 50%. But if you look at them, they are doing excellently well. There are people we have skipped to minister unto or to bless. Because if you alone was to do everything God designed for you to do, you would have, you would, you would, you must beat Apostle Paul on that day. Each of us have a ten, we have, we have been given grace to have to do all that they did. If you are to, yeah, there are people we have skipped and God want to restore us. People we are to, ought to encourage, God want to restore us. God want to restore your financial dignity and give you feet to support the kingdom. Hallelujah. Then for instruction in righteousness. Now the word instruction, paideia, that's where we get the word paideon. That's where we get the word pediatrician or pediatrics. Instruction is actually the word for child education or child training. Child education or child training, pediatrics, when a child is learning to speak and to walk, the word of God gives us the ability, teaches us to speak and to walk with God. Trains us, the God trains us as children. Now, when you are growing the Lord, when you were children, there are a lot of things you ask God will give you. But as you are growing, there are some things you ask God doesn't give you. Not because God doesn't love you. God hates you, but because he loves you. My child, I don't give her everything she asks. If I give everything she asks, I'll kill her. I will just kill her. It means I hate her. Because I love her, there are some things I will withhold from her. But you want to go out and marry this year. You are claiming, you are confessing, you are professing. <laughs> you are binding the bindables, you are casting the castables, you are loosing the loosables. Still, nothing is happening. Oh God, why me? Lord, I brought three ladies in the church and they are married. Lord, what about me? You said the righteous shall not be forsaken, but it's like I'm being forsaken. God, oh, why? God, why? God, why? God, why? Why me? And you can recount your friends. They've given birth. They are riding in cars. They have good jobs. And you are still walking. The sun is picking your forehead. You are saying, oh, when shall I? When shall I? Even propose a cry doesn't come close to you. When? 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 <laughs> Quench a lie. <laughs> a lie. Oh Lord, why? You know you shouldn't say why, but your heart has already asked why. <laughs> your heart has asked why. I have the good news for you. 
David said, my thanks are being in thy hand, O Lord. Your thanks are in his hands. He's determining everything, calculating everything. He has divine permutations. He knows what to allow and what to disallow. It's just a matter of time. Because the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. Hallelujah. I know of divine elections and divine selections. I'm telling you, when the favor of God comes upon you, one favor is better than thousand years of man's labor. And when that favor comes upon you, just within a short possible time, they'll begin to look at you. We knew you were last, but what is the mystery? Beloved, in my short life, I've seen some of these wonders. There are those who seem to be behind, but within a short time, they were the celebrated ones. I'm telling you, you are about to be celebrated. You think God has delayed? It's not delayed. He's just preparing you perfectly and preparing your helpers and preparing your blessings and preparing your future and preparing those to, to network with you. God is making a perfect arrangement all over. He's the all wise God. He knows all things and he works all things after the counsel of his own will and he's doing it and he's perfecting it. Say ye to the righteous, it shall be well with him. He shall eat the fruit of his doings. Beloved, oh, those that when you are working with God, there comes a time you don't determine your pace, space. When you are working with yourself, you can lead yourself, determine your own pace and your own space. But when once you are working with the eternal, it will be as if you are delaying. But every step has a reason. Because he knows the step that I take. And when he has tried me, I will come out as a fine gold. He knows your steps. He's just refining you. He's just polishing you. It's just a matter of time. We are undergoing through child training processes. We have been trained. You apply for the visa, you are bound. Oh, forget about it. God knows why. He has a wisdom of keeping you in his will. You apply for master's degree, it didn't happen. Thank God it didn't happen. Because your setback will be your comeback someday. So, beloved, we have been instructed. We are undergoing through instructions in righteousness. And when you are going through, some friends will leave you. You wonder why they've left. It's the mind of God. Because if they are with you, they will mislead you. Because evil communications corrupt good manners. When once you have decided to work with him, initially things may seem some way, but that actually is your glory. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's your glory. So we have been instructed in righteousness. Pideon. And you know, righteousness is the nature of God. 
What it actually means is that we are instructed to live and to be like God. We are instructed to live like God. We have been instructed to live like God. Because we are going to reign with him. Because we are joint heirs with him. To reign with God. That's what God has taken his time. He's teaching you how to endure pressure. Hallelujah. He's teaching you how to react to situations and circumstances. He's teaching you how to survive broken heart. How to treat others though they are not in your class. And how to love them as Christ himself. He's teaching you. Instructing you in righteousness. So that when you are ready to be used, you, just, you are just like Jesus. You respond to issues like Jesus. You treat men like Jesus. You are just like his son. That is the goal of God. We are being trained, child education and raised so that we will be like him. That is why sometimes you fast and pray for a long time. No answer from God. No vision, no dream, no prophecy. No feeling. Why? God is taking you through the adventure of faith. Instructing in righteousness. Let, let me show you something that happened. Anytime you are believing God for healing, and you take scriptures on healing, and you take communion that week, and you start confessing the word, the sickness starts increasing. You know why? Jesus spoke about the parable of the sower. The one that sowed on the rocky grounds. Quickly it sprouted up. But there was no depth. Jesus said, these are those when they receive the word. Straight away they rejoice. But when trouble comes because of the word, they are offended by and by. Jesus said trouble came not because they sinned. Trouble came not because they missed his will. Trouble came because of the word. Jesus said when trouble came because of the word, they were offended. I'm telling you of the trouble that comes because of the word. <laughs> trouble that comes because of the word. Why? Anytime you want to get into the next realm of finances and you start sowing seeds, Satan comes in. He comes in at that time to totally discourage you, to let you know that this faith business doesn't work. <laughs> so he begin to intensify the situation. And at that time, you begin to see penury. Penury, nothing seems to be working. Hey! And he will intensify the heat. Now, trouble has come because of your obedience. It's a kind of trouble that comes because of obedience. You are activating your faith for healing. You're confessing healing. But the more you confess, you went to the hospital the next week and the doctor said, it has grown worse. Jesus said, these guys, because the word is on the rock and it's not deep, they are offended. So those who stop because the sickness has intensified and they leave the faith business, they are those who sit on the rock. You see, we are not ignorant of his, his devices. Any step you are taking, the devil comes to intensify it, to discourage you. But when once you've held on and persevered and persisted and moved through with faith, you'll see endless stream of miracles. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. The next verse. That a man of God may be perfect, 
truly finished unto all good works. Truly finished. Say truly finished. Now, what does it mean to, to be truly finished? Truly finished. What does it mean? Truly finished. Is the word exactly do. Now, in the days, now what it means is that literally he's saying that how you respond to word determines how far you go in life. This is what this verse means. I'm going to explain. How you respond to the word or you give yourself to the word will determine how far you go in life. That's what it means. Let me explain. Now, in the days of Paul, there were two kinds of boats that were used for sailing. Two kinds of boats. The first one was the ordinary boat. With the ordinary boats, it was so ordinary that you can only use it on lakes. You can't go far. You can't go distances with the ordinary boat because it wasn't equipped. So you sit in the ordinary boat and it was propelled by the wind. So you can just move through the lakes, but you can't go far. You can't travel far distances. You can't make long voyage. It, there was ordinary boats on the lakes. There was another kind of boat that was equipped with sails and with a rudder and with a gear and with special equipment. This was the second kind of boats. It was mega boats and uh, actually ships in those days. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, with those kind of boats, you could cross countries. Because when we're equipped with a gear and with a rudder and with the sails, what it means is that you have equipped yourself against rough waters on the high seas. You have equipped yourself against the sea, the stormy seas of life. Because they are raging storms that can hit it. And number three, you can travel long distances. So the ordinary boat can travel the lake side of life, but the one that is equipped will move on the sea of life and travel long distances. Praise God. Now the word truly finished is the word that describes the equipment for the second kind of boat. It describes, you know, the rudder, the sails and the, the, the GS and everything, that is actually the word truly finished or completely equipped. It means to be complete, completely equipped. So what Paul is saying is that when we become born again and we start reading the Bible, we are in the first kind of boat. We are served the Lord in the first kind of boat. We can't really go far. We are just on the lake side of life. But he's trying to tell you and me that how far we can go in life is determined by whether we are truly, truly finished or whether we are equipped. Because God will not take you far if you don't have the seals and you don't have the rudder to cause you to withstand the storms you face on the high seas. So there are people who are saying, oh, I want to go far in life. God himself wants you to go far in life. But God sees you, you just have the boat, but you don't have the seals. You have the boat, you don't have the gear, you don't have the radar. And if God is to take you from the lake to the high seas, the storms will destroy you. You can't travel from one country to another country or continent to another continent because you are not equipped for that kind of voyage. So Paul is actually saying that how far we will go in life, whether you go beyond the lake side of life, and whether we be on the high seas and 
touch nations and become so resourceful that you are sought after. Wow. Whether you, you impact countries and nations and you become so impactful, influential or resourceful in every field of life, whether in, in ministry or in business or wherever you are, as far as you are a child of God, the principles are the same. He's saying that God cannot just put you on that high pedestal if you have no jail and you have no seals. Because if God does so to you, God hate you because God knows you'll be destroyed. The pressures of life, the storms of life, the temptations of life will bash you left and right and you collapse. For God to promote you is for your own undoing because your promotion will be your demotion. And your promotion will actually go against God's name and God's integrity because you yourself, you are not prepared. And the storms will just break the boat apart and the boat will be wrecked. Praise God. But we here, our desire is to be in God's own ship. And we want to be equipped with the word so that we have everything that is necessary. We have the radar to navigate the ship. We have the sails to keep the wind. We have the gear to navigate a team. We are fully equipped. How far you give yourself to the word of God is how far God will take you in life. How far you give yourself to the word of God is how far God will commit responsibility into your hands. How far God can trust you is how much you commit the word to your heart. Sometimes God wants to use us. He looks at my son. He looks at you. He said, actually, this is the time I had wanted to use you. God looks at you and God says, not yet. By this time, you should have impacted nations. And by this time, there were people I would have brought you to impact. But God looks at you and says, not yet. You don't have the radar. You don't have the skills. Not yet. Because if I push you there, it will be for your undoing. It will be for your distraction. Beloved, how far you go, it's not dependent on God alone. It's your collaboration with God. It's dependent on you. How much you allow the word to work in your heart. How much you allow the word to, to endure the endowment of the word. The word equips you against temptations. You know how to stand against temptations. God takes time to raise a man. Because if God doesn't take time to equip you with a word, you get high there, you get up there. Oh, the devil knows you. The devil knows your weaknesses. The devil will package a knife. Nice Delilah. The devil knows you are as strong as Samson spiritually, yet he knows your weakness. Because by seeing you, you remind the devil of Samson. Therefore, you remind him of the temptation wherewith he tempted Samson. So the devil just packaged a Delilah on your way. And while you see Delilah, all your strength is just. You see, there's a kind of promotion that comes from men. We are in a generation men and want to promote themselves so they can make their own billboards, they can just do it, whatever, and try and try and try, but it's useless. Jesus said, I receive not honor from men. How, how can you believe if you receive honor from one from another? But you see, there's a promotion that comes from God and he does it in due season. And beloved, I want you to go and take the word. You see, the word is not just for the mind, it's for the heart. You take it. There was once a farmer. His son told him. He told his son to read the Bible every day. And his 
his son said, Daddy, you know that I don't understand this whole Bible. I don't even understand. How can I read it? Then his father said, take this basket and fetch water and come and water the garden. So you go and cut, fetch the water. By the time he reaches the garden, all the water is gone. He did it ten times. He will say, oh, daddy, that, that water, I, I, cannot, I cannot contain the water. Then he said, you go again. So the guy realized that his father wanted to teach, teach him something. Because the guy's problems that he doesn't understand, he doesn't even remember the things he read. And the father said, learn this lesson. Look at the basket. Although you couldn't retain the water, something has happened to the basket. This was not how it was when he started dipping it in the water. That basket is cleansed. What you are thinking is retention, but God, what God's looking at you is cleansing. <laughs> cleansing. Because as you read, your heart is being molded. Something is working out from within. As you read, all you know, your responses, your reactions are changing. Now you have a soft tone. Now you welcome each other. Previously, as an usher, if someone comes to church, that just goes. But now you go like, hello. You just hold the person's hand. Why? It's the effect of the word of God in your heart. Something is just working within you. <laughs> Brethren, you people have great destinies. And one of the things God gave this church is that when you are in this ministry, it's like a puzzle. You just fall into the will of God. I mean, what God has for you in your life. It's not difficult to fall in it when you are in it. God showed me. But you see, how far we will go in impact determines on how we give ourselves to the word. And our joy is that each of us will not be the first boat, but the second boat. We have sails and rudder fully equipped that our father looks upon us. We are ready for the responsibility. He wouldn't say, hey, my son is not ready. Let's wait for the next two years. It's God's timetable to promote you. God knows this is time. This is the time, and my son is ready. He can handle the finances. He can handle the money. He can handle the promotion. He can handle the ministry. He can handle the international. He can handle it. Hallelujah. May you be truly finished, completely equipped unto every good work. Lift up your voice and let's begin to pray. God bless you for listening. Keep listening to the word as Christ is made the center of your world. For prayer and counseling, call 024-563-8314 or send an email to info at ChristWorldINC.com. God bless you.